When you introduce yourself to somebody, how do you usually do it? What do you usually tell them when you first meet them about yourself? Our leadership team was talking about this with somebody the other day who said that oftentimes people who grew up in the West, in Western culture, will introduce themselves by giving their name and then describing what they do for a living. Hi, my name is Michael and I'm a pastor. Though, <laughs> Uh, for obvious reasons, I literally never say that, but that's, that's a frequent way of introducing ourselves, that we think the most important piece of information that this new person needs to know in order to interact me well, to understand me and interact with me well, is my profession. It's the most important thing about me. We were talking about it because this person was from an indigenous background, and they said, especially in traditional settings, Indigenous introductions never talk about profession. In fact, you don't even give your name at first. You introduce yourself by describing your ancestors. My grandparents were these people, and they come from this region. That in an indigenous culture and context, the most important thing you need to know about me are my people and my place. That's the information you need in order to interact with me well, in order to get a sense for who I am. That's what introductions do, right? They, they're trying to help a new person understand who we are in order that we can relate well. And now here's the question that emerges out of the text we're going to look at this morning is, it, is this, if God were to introduce God's self, what is the way that God would introduce God's self? What is the important information that God would want us to know? See, we're picking up the story of the book of Exodus in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, right where we left the story off last week, where Moses is now living, having been born into a Jewish slave family and being raised by Pharaoh's daughter in the Egyptian palace as a prince of Egypt not a prince of thieves, if you are here a few weeks ago, a prince of Egypt, um, he is now living as a political refugee, a fugitive from Egypt, living in the land of Midian, where he has become an outsider, but has settled into the culture, gotten married, had a family, and according to Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, was busy working in his father-in-law's family business. It says this, Moses was taking care of the flock for his father-in-law Jethro, Midian's priest. He led his flock out to the edge of the desert, and he came to God's mountain called Horeb. It's an interesting comment about Moses, the way the text describes where he was. He says he was on the edge of the desert. Some translations say he was on the far side of the desert. That matters because in the Bible, a desert often becomes symbolic of a place where evil resides, or say it a different way, a place where God is absent. If God is a God of life and hope and abundance and flourishing, then obviously in a desert with its lack of water and lack of a life and lack of abundance, God is just clearly not there. And so the desert kind of becomes symbolic of a place where God's absence is felt. And that's where Moses was. In fact, Moses, even more desperately, is on the far side of the desert. 
And yet on the far side of the desert, the place of God's absence, Moses discovers a place of God's presence. He's in the desert on the far side and he comes to God's mountain. Mountains in ancient times are often thought to symbolize places of uh, where the sacred is, where the divine is. Heaven was thought to be up and a mountain is up. So if you get to the top of the mountain, you're as close to the gods as you can get. It's where the gods were. And so here's Moses in the place of God's absence, yet discovering God's presence. It says in the next verse, the Lord's messenger appeared to him in a flame of fire in the middle of a bush. Moses saw that the bush was in flames, but it didn't burn up. Then Moses said to himself, let me check out this amazing sight and find out why the bush isn't burning up. Moses is tending the shepherds. He's gone to the sheep. He's gone to the far side of the desert in search of pasture. And one day discovers, he sees a bush that's on fire, which is probably a curious enough sight. If there's nobody around and there certainly were no lightning strikes, why, who set fire to this bush? And so it captures his attention. But as Moses watches, what he notices beyond this bush that's on fire is he notices that this bush, though it's burning, isn't getting burnt up. And so he says, let me go over and see what it is that's going on. And when he goes over to see, God speaks to him from the fire in the bush and says, take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. God reveals God's presence to Moses in the place of God's absence. Moses, in the desert, in the place where God is not, suddenly discovers himself to be in the presence of a holy God. And so Moses, wanting to know who this God is, asks God a very specific question. He says, what is your name? In ancient cultures, names were thought to, to represent or signify the character or the nature of a person. A name told you what a person was really like. My name is Michael. It's a Hebrew name that means the one who is like God. See, a name tells you exactly what a person is really like. So Moses says to God, I want to know your name. God, what are you really like? Introduce yourself to me. Tell me who you really are. And God said in verse 14, I am who I am. So say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. That phrase, I am who I am, is the source of a lot of debate in scholarship about how to translate it and what it really means. Most often, people translate it by saying, I am who I am. And for some people, they say, God is basically saying, listen, I am who I am. It's none of your business. Don't bother. <laughs> but there are others who say, no, if, God, if Moses is curious about who God is, why wouldn't God tell him? And they say, I am who I am, refers to God's eternal, unchanging nature. I just always am exactly who I am, and I never change. 
Others say it should probably be translated because there's debate about this. I am who I will be or I will be who I am. And they say it's God saying to Moses, listen, I will continue to be the same as I have always been, the same as you have known me to be. I am reliable and faithful and I will never change. There are others who say, no, it should be translated, I will be who I will be. And what God is saying to Moses is, you will get to know me as you see who I am for you. As you see my activity unfold in your life, that's how you get to know who I really am. And and they notice that there's a pun in the text because later on, God sends Moses back to Egypt to rescue the Israelites. He says, I can't do it. And God says, yes, you can. I will be with you. And it's like God is saying, listen, Moses, I will be who I will be. And here's who I will be. I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be for you. You will discover who I really am in the ways that I am for you. However you understand this text, that seems to be at the heart of it. God says to Moses, you don't need my name. Though he he says, you can call me the I am. Or later on, he says, you can call me Yahweh which is the name of God. Um, Yahweh is a form of I am. But he says, I'll give you my name, but you will really come to know who I really am in the way that you see what I do for you. And what will God do? It says in verse seven, then the Lord said, that's the word Yahweh. Whenever you see the Lord in the Old Testament, uh, you can read God's name, Yahweh. Then Yahweh said, I've clearly seen my people oppressed in Egypt. I've heard their cry of injustice because of their slave masters. I know their pain. I've come down to rescue them. God says, you will know me by what I do. And here's what God does. God cares. He says, I I see the oppression. I hear your cries of injustice. I am attentive to your pain and your suffering, and I'm inclined with sympathy and kindness towards you. But God not only cares, it says, God says, I know about their pain. It's too bad that they translate it, I know about their pain, because that sounds like God saying, I just received a memo about that gave me the information about your pain. No, the word no in Hebrew, this word no, is an experiential no. God says, I, I understand your pain. I've entered into your suffering with you. I am suffering your suffering alongside of you. I feel your pain. God is a God who knows or cares God is a God who knows or understands or feels your pain. And thirdly, God says, I have come down to rescue. God is a God who is on the move to rescue us from slavery to freedom, from emptiness to fullness, from oppression to joy. That's what Exodus 3 is about. Moses is in the place of God's absence and discover God's presence. The God who will be known by the way that God cares and understands and acts savingly on our behalf. That's a powerful image to me. 
in part because I think a lot of us are in our own wildernesses these days. I, I think the pandemic is its own wilderness. This, you know, in the wilderness, Moses is weeks travel away from home. And I think the pandemic has left a lot of us feeling like we're far from home. We're feeling this place of God's absence. But even beyond that, I think some of us are experiencing a spiritual wilderness, just this in our soul experiencing the absence of God or in our wrestling with sin and losing that battle, we're experiencing the absence of God or in our fighting against addiction. I think some of us are in mental and emotional health wildernesses where we just feel in our own struggles, the absence of God or relational wildernesses where we feel isolated and alone. Or in economic wildernesses where in the last six months or maybe unrelated to the pandemic, the security of our life seems to be gone. Or we're in a political wilderness where we look around and we just feel the absence of God in the way the world feels like it's teetering on chaos sometimes. And the question that's left unanswered by this story is why has God allowed the wilderness to be? Moses has been in the wilderness for weeks. Um, he has been living in exile for decades. Israel has been in slavery for centuries. Why has this gone on for so long? And the text doesn't tell us why God has waited until this moment to move. But what the text gives us is the promise that if we are attentive, we will experience the presence of God even in the midst of the absence of God. The invitation of the text is, will you be attentive? Will you be willing to Keep your eyes of faith open like Moses did and see the extraordinary of divine reality breaking through the ordinary experience of life. God met or Moses met God in the regular event of a bush on fire. Will we Keep our eyes open to be attentive to the presence of God in the midst of the absence of God, to see God even where it feels like God is absent. Like Moses, are we going to be willing to explore, to lean in, to go towards that potential for God's presence? Will we look around and see the ways in which God is on the move, caring and empathizing and understanding and joining people in their suffering and moving to bring God's saving love into their experience through people and communities and, and by the Holy Spirit? Or will, we, will we look and see the ways that God is on the move? Will we be willing to participate with God? In the text, God sends Moses back to Egypt. We're going to talk about all of this next week, about how God invites Moses to participate in the coming of God's saving love, God's loving justice into the world. He says, I'm sending you now. Go tell the Israelites, I am has sent you. And Moses is willing to go, kind of. <laughs> Are we willing to participate? in the ways in which God is care, caring and understanding and entering into suffering and 
um, bringing God's loving justice into the world. When God reveals who God really is, the goal is not information, but invitation for us to trust and receive and then to go and give, to be God's loving presence in the world. And when we are attentive to the presence of God in the midst of the absence of God, you know what we will discover? We will discover the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 14, verse 6, it says, Jesus answered his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The disciples said, Jesus, show us God. And Jesus looks at them and said, when you look at me, you see God. He says, I am and in using those two words, I am, Jesus is declaring that in his person, he is the embodiment of the God who revealed God's self to Moses in the burning bush. That he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament. He is the God that Israel is invited to know and to love. He's saying, I am the way. When you look at me, you see the way that God is, the way that God moves in the world. When you look at me, you see the truth about what God is really like. When you look at me, you see the life of God, that overflowing, abundant, joy-filled, peace-bringing life of love embodied in a person and overflowing into the world. When you look at me, you see what God is like. You see a God who cares and understands your pain and oppression and enters into your suffering in order to rescue you from your sin. To rescue you from the absence of God by reconnecting you in loving relationship with God in a way that brings forgiveness and transformation from all of the unloving ways that you and I have been in our lives and guides us towards a future that is increasingly filled with a love for God and a love for ourselves and a love for each other and a love for the poor and forgotten and ignored and a love for our enemies and a love for the world and the planet itself towards a future that is only ever love. You will see a God that cares and understands and enters in to rescue us from our oppression, to bring healing to our brokenness, to bring connection to our aloneness, to bring peace to our relationships, to bring wisdom to our choices. You see a God who cares and understands and enters in to set us free from systems of sin whether it's from our participation in systems of um, oppression and injustice or from the ways we are oppressed unjustly. Jesus sets us free from the economics of greed and injustice, from the politics of oppression and power, from communities that exclude and religions that condemn and um, exploitation of creation. If we are willing 
in the absence of God, to be attentive to the presence of God, what we will see is the God who who is revealed in Jesus Christ as the God who cares and who enters into our suffering in order to set us free from slavery to freedom, from emptiness to fullness, from oppression to joy. A number of years ago, a writer named A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing about us is what we think about when we think about God. And this is true. And what we're invited to think about God, the way God wants to introduce God's self to us, is to say, if you want to know what I'm like, look at Jesus. Man by the name of Brian Zond, a pastor in the States, has said, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We have not always known this, but now we do. The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. In the midst of the absence of God, can you be attentive enough to discover the presence of the God who shows God's face in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we live in times where it is easy to feel your absence, and yet we know that you are always present. Would you give us eyes of faith? to be able to truly see you? Would you give us a heart that trusts that we can receive you? And would you give us hands and feet that are willing to go so that we can join you in your caring, empathizing, rescuing love that's been made real to us in Jesus? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.